So the big question I want to ask is this. What do you believe health and physical education teachers in schools like me should accomplish and how can you do it in an online world if you're a teacher or a parent? Whether you're the parent or the PE teacher or school leader or anyone involved in the raising of our children, how should children turn out when it comes to their physical health when they leave school and enter their adult years? And more importantly, in today's world, how do you begin to teach this online? What content do you use? How do you assess kids' work online? What platform should you do? How do you upload? What's hard? What's easy? Where do you get the content? Importantly, how do you make the shift? What should our children know and what should our children be able to do? And how responsible are we for their personal physical health status? These are the questions I've spent the past 32 years in schools teaching health and physical education in the past eight years consulting and gathering the world's best experts in the following disciplines. Cardiology, medicine, public health, childhood physical activity research, exercise physiology, pedagogy, cognitive neuroscience, applied exercise science, sensor technology, physical education, metabolic disease, and heaps more. I've also spent 22 years of this teaching it online in one way or another. Today, that's gone up significantly. Today, I teach totally online and my students are loving it. This is the Expert Secrets Roadmap Radio Show. My name is Shane Stubbs and with the help of my PhD guests, we will answer the questions which raise the physical health destiny of all school-age children around the world. Okay, so, so I, I can I can speak fairly rapidly right. uh, and, and address your questions. The, right. the, the first two that you had yeah. are, um, is, is fitness more critical than some of the traditional bio risk, biomarkers for health? Yeah. And if one does improve their uh, cardiorespiratory fitness score, will that have a positive impact on other chronic conditions? Is this a fair educational statement? Yeah. Let me give you my answer to that. Number, number one. Uh, uh, the background for cardiorespiratory fitness is what we call peak METs or metabolic equivalents. Yep. As we're on the phone this morning, you and I are both at one MET, which means we're consuming one unit of oxygen. Uh, we can measure energy expenditure in terms of METs. So if someone is at 10 METs, it means they're taking in 10 times the energy expenditure at rest. Now, now to your point, it, it, Peak METs is, in fact, more critical than many traditional biomarkers for health. Yes, it beats traditional risk factors. That is obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol as a prognostic indicator. Uh, the original study, one of the original studies that showed that was a, a friend of mine, Dr. John Myers, a, a VA in Palo Alto, California. Oh, I've been there. Where he... Yeah, he published that in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2002. So, yes, peak meds, cardiorespiratory fitness does beat traditional risk factors. Now, moving on to your question, uh, the fact of the matter is increased physical activity and or increased cardiorespiratory fitness unequivocally reduce the risk for chronic disease. Uh, a classic study uh, that I oftentimes cite in my presentations was done at the Cooper Clinic in Dallas, Texas. Yes. They looked 
at uh, men. They looked at low-fit men versus high-fit men. It was a six-year follow-up. What did they find? Relative to low-fit low men had a two-fold, twice the risk for developing impaired fasting glucose over that six-year follow-up period, and a 3.7-fold increased risk for, for developing diabetes compared with the high-fit group. We can do that for almost any chronic condition. So, yes, uh, low-fit people are at higher risk for developing cardiovascular disease and other chronic diseases. Three other key points on this first question. Each one met increase, Shane, in, mort in METs yep. decreases mortality on average by 16%. Wow. So each one met increase in fitness expressed as METs decreases the mortality by about 16%. Second major point here is that at any given risk factor profile, being unfit increases the risk of death two to threefold in every follow-up study to date. Once again, at any given risk factor profile, I take two guys the same age, both have high cholesterol. That's the only thing they have. Yep. The unfit person is two to three times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease uh, in follow-up. And lastly, a very hot area right now is coronary calcium. Yeah. The higher your coronary calcium, the, the evidence indicates that you're developing what's called early cardiovascular disease. And a new study that came out from the Cleveland Clinic showed, or from the Cooper Clinic, yep. showed that being fit decreased the risk of cardiac events and mortality at any given coronary calcium level. Wow. Once again, being fit decreased the risk of cardiac events and mortality at any given coronary calcium level. So I think that adequately addresses the first two yeah. points you sent me. Yes. Do you have questions? No, uh, that is perfect. I know a lot about coronary calcium score. I spent 40 minutes one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Cooper last year in Nashville. I can't believe that guy. Is, he's a freak. Um, and yeah. uh, that, no, yeah. that, that is beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Franklin. Okay. Okay, let's go to your, your second question, which pertained to uh, if fitness improves uh, pulse wave velocity, does it have implications uh, to lower blood pressure. Yeah. Uh, I believe that could be part of the reason why blood pressure is lowered, but the fact of the matter is there are several potential mechanisms whereby increased fitness or increased physical activity uh, decreases the risk for developing incident hypertension, that is future hypertension. The research tells us that exercise training typically reduces systolic blood pressure by four to eight millimeters of mercury. That's an important point. Mm. Exercise training typically reduces resting systolic blood pressure by four to eight millimeters of mercury. Now, Shane, if your blood pressure is 180, exercise, uh, systolic is 180, exercise ain't gonna, alone ain't going to do it. <laughs> no. So, 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 so you're going to need a beta blocker, you're going to need an ACE inhibitor, you're going to need an antihypertensive agent, yeah. but recognize that regular aerobic exercise probably has some modest effects on lowering blood pressure. Yeah. We just finished a study last year that we published in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise where we took a large cohort, over, four, over uh, 200 
uh, African-American women and 200 Caucasian women subjected them to a six-month exercise training program and at a fixed submaximal workload uh, at the end of that six-month training program, systolic blood pressure had decreased by 20 millimeters of mercury. Wow. So the point I'm making is that exercise not only reduces resting blood pressure, it reduces blood pressure at any uh, 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 given level of exercise. Mm. And the mechanisms, I believe, are multifactorial. Okay. One, exercise lowers resting and exercise heart rate. And if you lower heart rate, you lower blood pressure. Mm. Number two, exercise decreases peripheral vascular resistance because it uh, dilates blood vessels, which lower blood pressure. Okay. And that is at rest as well? At, at rest and during exercise. Okay. Number three, exercise is a stress reducer. Uh Oftentimes, I got executives who say, oh, I got a stressful situation. I come to your gym. I work on the treadmill and this and that. I feel uh, uh, much better physiologically. And the fact of the matter is, they have lower blood pressure when they leave. Uh, exercise decreases body weight and fat stores, which can also decrease blood pressure at rest. And exercise, regular exercise, also decreases catecholamine levels mm. and increases parrot parasympathetic stimulation, which collectively result in a decrease in systolic blood pressure. Okay. So I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say the whole mechanism is uh, an improvement in pulse wave velocity. Certainly that may be one thing, yeah. but all these other things that I mentioned to you probably account for the, uh, the four to eight millimeter drop in resting blood pressure. And uh, as I said, we finished a study that we published in Medicine and Science and Sports showing after six months of exercise training at a fixed submaximal workload, the average white and black middle-aged woman showed a 20 millimeter drop in blood pressure. That's huge. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's good. That's a great answer. I really that the whole mechanism thing. That's something that yes. I'm going to convert into an education statement and use your exact words in your own voice in our podcasts. That lot of snippets. Excellent. Now, your third question had to do with the determinants of cardiorespiratory fitness. Does high fitness create better stroke volume in the heart and cardiac output? Yeah. I think what's first important for you and your readers to understand is fitness, or what's also known as VO2, oxygen yes. consumption, <laughs> yep. is determined by two, two variables, cardiac output yep. times arterial venous oxygen difference. Mm -hmm. When people improve their cardiorespiratory fitness, maximal heart rate largely stays unchanged. Right. So the heart rate, when I talk about cardiac output, maximal heart rate largely stays unchanged. What does improve typically is stroke volume. Right. So if heart rate stays unchanged and stroke volume increases, cardiac output increases at maximal exercise. And we also have some data to suggest there are modest improvements in the arterial venous oxygen difference. Right, okay. In other words, in other words, the muscle is better able to extract yeah. oxygenated uh, uh, oxygen from the blood, which is flowing by during exercise. So, so the primary reasons are improved stroke volume 
along with a modest increase in arterial venous oxygen difference. So to, to clarify from an educator's perspective, an improved stroke volume means your heart is doing same work or less amount of work but pumping out more oxygen? Does that, is that what that means? Uh, I, I would say the, the, the heart uh, at uh, maximal exercise uh, the cardiac output is increased, uh, which means that more oxygenated blood is going to muscle. Right. Yeah. So it's effectively working less to get a better result. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I, I would I would agree with that. And I'd say the primary mechanism, the primary mechanism is cardiac output, improved cardiac output, and of that, it's not the heart rate, it's primarily an increase in stroke volume. So the heart's pumping more blood, a, a greater volume of blood with each beat. Yes. That's stroke volume. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, this next one is very, that's ter- now, tremendous. Yep. But, yeah, now, you, you also said something about what's the value of this for the person with cardiovascular disease. Yes. To, to me, uh, uh, by being physically fit, you have a lower heart rate at rest and during exercise. Yes. And what that does is increase what we call diastolic perfusion. It increases coronary perfusion time. In other words, Shane, you need to recognize that the heart oxygenates uh, in between beats, not when it's pumping, but in between beats. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's called diastolic filling time. Yes. Uh, the lower the lower heart rate also decreases the risk for heart rhythm irregularities and what we call myocardial ischemia. So the lower heart rate associated with cardiorespiratory fitness for someone trying to prevent heart disease or with heart disease increases coronary perfusion time or diastolic filling and decreases the likelihood of myocardial ischemia, insufficient blood and oxygen flow, which can trigger serious heart rhythm regularities. Okay, and that's, that is so fascinating because that's something that I haven't been able to delve into in the literature. The education program that we've developed, which is a health technology education program, focuses on three areas – your, we call it active heart fitness score, which is CRF, resting uh, fit, uh, heart fitness score, and your recovery fitness score. But all that information about resting is something that I hadn't, you know, that's really detailed stuff that, that needs to be a part of us at an educational level. Yeah, I, I would agree. And when patients ask me, I work with people with heart disease on a day-to-day basis. When yeah. patients say to me, what is the ideal resting heart rate and the ideal resting blood pressure? Yeah. My answer in, in lay language is lower is better. Mm. I'll say that again. Lower resting heart rate and lower resting blood pressure convey better prognosis. There are good studies to date that suggest if we look at people who's resting, look at their resting heart rate. Uh, Shane, if it's typically less than 60, they have a much, much better health prognosis than those who are above a heart rate of 80. Mm. That was a classic study published in the, in the Mayo Clinic proceedings. So 60, 55, 60, much better prognosis than 85, 90, 95 resting heart rate. And Secondly, it, when it... Yep. Go ahead. 
No, very good question on that. Is there, I don't know whether it's a linear correlation or, but is there a significant correlation between raising your CRF score and that resting heart rate um, going down? Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, you, you are correct. There, there is a, a, a good correlation. In general, the higher the cardiorespiratory fitness, the higher the METs, the lower the resting heart rate. Okay. Yes. Good. In general. Yeah. In general. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, now, the other thing pe- people say to me is, what should my blood pressure be? For many, many years, Shane, I said less than 140 mm. uh, systolic. I, I was wrong. Okay. I'll say that again. I was wrong. There's a new study out about two years ago, New England Journal of Medicine, called the SPRINT trial, yeah. where they looked at people with elevated blood pressure. They randomized them to conventional uh, less than 140 or, or aggressive less than 120, uh, and they followed them over a period of years. Shame they stopped the damn study early. Why? Because those... Those who were randomized to trying to get the blood pressure less than 120 had a 26% lower death rate. So the point I'm making is lower systolic blood pressure is better. Wow, that's, yeah, that's good. That's fantastic. And we've already talked about the impact of the fitness has on that. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, do keep in mind it's a fine line for the doctor, for the primary care doc, because if you get some people down with a systolic blood pressure of ninety or eighty-eight, uh, they can get lightheaded when they get up. They can have a fall, and so on and so forth. Yes. But overall, our goals are resting heart rate less than sixty and resting systolic blood pressure less than one hundred and twenty. Lower generally conveys a better prognosis. Wow, that's yeah, that's fantastic. That, that's good. Now, one other one other thing, and that is when, when somebody improves their, their cardiorespiratory fitness, I typically say there are four major mechanisms here, and I'll just go through these very, very quickly. Yes. Uh, the first mechanism is anti-atherosclerotic. Mm. Uh, so exercise, improved fitness, has anti-atherosclerotic effects. By that, I'm saying it lowers blood pressure, it improves lipids, it decreases body fat stores, it increases insulin sensitivity, and it decreases inflammation. So all those are considered anti-atherosclerotic uh, adaptations. Wow, that's, yeah. And, and most people, are called, we, we talk about in our, in our work all about atherosclerosis as well. So it's something that okay. we'll explain and, in detail. Now, the second mechanism is called anti-ischemic. In other words, by lowering the heart rate and blood pressure, we lower what's called the rate pressure product, which is a key index of cardiac oxygen demand. So if you lower cardiac oxygen demand, uh, you decrease the likelihood of serious heart rhythm regularities. By lowering the heart rate, you increase coronary blood flow because most blood flow occurs during diastole. And uh, to your point, that you sent to me, uh, we also have good evidence that uh, it improves endothelial function, mm. the ability of those coronary arteries to dilate and constrict. So those are all considered anti-ischemic okay. uh, adaptations to regular exercise. Got it, got it. Well, that's good. That's the part okay. I was interested in. 
Number three, antiarrhythmic. Uh, regular exercise results in increased vagal or parasympathetic tone, which is beneficial, decreased sympathetic stimulation, and increased heart rate variability. The, the, uh, the time variation from one beat to another, which has been shown to be cardioprotective. Yeah. Lastly, exercise has antithrombotic effects. In other words, it helps prevent blood clots. How does it do that? It decreases blood viscosity, it yep. decreases platelet adhesiveness, mm. and it increases fibrinolysis. It increases fibrinolysis, which helps prevent blood clots. So these are all cardioprotective mechanisms associated with increased physical activity and improved fitness. Well, Dr. Franklin, that is absolutely, could not be more on the mark of what I was interested in finding out if I tried because that I was fascinated by that paper but that last section you just said there about what those four yeah, different yeah. that that is just like education I, that is educational gold good good I'm glad you're enjoying it now let, let me go to questions you gave me uh, six questions overall let's go to number four yeah and talk about fit, fitness and cancer yes uh, the first thing I would I would do when we talk about fitness and cancer is I'd give you two names that you may wish to pursue because okay. I work with both of these women on a paper that was published earlier this year in the journal circulation on cancer and, and fitness one is Susan Gilchrist yep uh, and the other is Anna Barak, B-A-R-A-C. They are two world-known authorities in the U.S. on the topic of fitness and cancer. Okay. Now, relative, relative to this topic, I combed the literature, and I want to come up with four major statements for you that I think summarize what we know so far. Point number one, numerous studies suggest that improved fitness decreases cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. Yep. Improved fitness decreases cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. Well, if it decreases all-cause mortality, my, my interpretation of that is it probably also decreases cancer mortality. Yeah. Okay? N number two. Many cancer survivors are at increased risk for morbidity and mortality from non-cancer causes. Mm. That is predominantly cardiovascular disease. So increasingly, people say to me, "Well, I had cancer diagnosed 20 years ago, and uh, it was it was uh, it was cured, or there's been no no uh, uh, recent tests suggesting cancer. However, I've now developed cardiovascular disease." Mm. So. So many cancer survivors are at risk for non uh, death from non-cancer causes, and the number one cause is CVD, cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Topic number three, in general, current evidence indicates that exercise training may attenuate or reduce uh, the cancer treatment-induced declines in cardiorespiratory fitness. Okay. As you're probably well aware, many of the damn medications that people yes. are taking for, 
for cancer uh, mark uh, cause muscle wasting uh, they, 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 uh, they, they uh, you know they're, they're killing cells yeah and uh, we now believe that uh, no question cancer survivors oftentimes have very low levels of cardiorespiratory fitness so exercise training may help to attenuate 